must act. Acting, we value. We must make decisions in the absence of sufficient information. It is, traditionally speaking, to good and evil, our moral sensibility that allows us this ability. It is our mythological conventions operating implicitly or explicitly that guide our choices. But what are these conventions? How are we to understand the fact of their existence? How are we to understand them? It does. No, not yet. Once again, who put his finger on the modern problem central to issues of valence or meaning? Not, as before, how to act from within the confines of a particular culture, but whether to believe. So the thing we have to wonder, wonder about Jordan Peterson, though, is what's the fruit of this philosophy that he has? Because, you know, he became kind of very conservative. I know that he's very conservative and he kind of like blames the victim and he talks like, oh, yeah, the. the the lobsters, they have a hierarchical society and it's right. And, you know, he kind of like justifies women being mistreated and, and kind of looks down upon things, you know, like he has conservative tendencies. So even if his, you know, he could have a true philosophy, but regardless, his uh, mindset is a little bit immature, in my opinion. Any thoughts? Well, that, that could be, or it could be that he's just saying, uh, like we, discovered with the Greeks, you, you obey the order you depend on until that order is upgraded, until you discover we, the higher remember, order. Well, remember we listened to him and he was being kind of judgmental. Remember we listened to yeah. us? Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah, a little judgmental. Yeah. No. With yeah. attitude, spoke with attitude, and, you know. Yeah. The question of how- Rather than discerning and transparent could even be reasonably asked, let alone answered. Just because our moral philosophers knew the facts of morality only very approximately in arbitrary extracts or in accidental epitomies, for example, as the morality of the environment, their class, their church, the spirit of their time, their climate and part of the world, just because they were poorly informed and not even very curious about different peoples, times and past ages, they never laid eyes on the real problems of morality, for these emerge only when we compare many moralities. In all science of morals so far, one thing was lacking, strange as it may sound, the problem of morality itself. What was lacking was any suspicion that there was something problematic here. This problem of morality, is there anything moral in any realistic general sense? And if so, how might it be comprehended? It's a question that has now attained paramount importance. We have the technological power. It does? No. What do you think is morality, and it does? Well, it's it's the code of, of what is assumed or believed, either one, uh, to be... Um, to be the right thing and what is assumed or believed to be the wrong thing to do. Yeah, that's it. No. Is it important? It, all morality, all morality is a uh, concession to a working process, because in the flow, you don't you don't obey any morality codes. Yeah, the only problem is then you get people like Donald Trump are like, oh yeah, I'm just following my intuition. I'm just in the flow, but really they're they're in their ego, dualistic consciousness, impersonal, even impersonal. Any thoughts? Right. 
Yeah, he yeah, he's 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 uh, surrendering leadership to his impulses. So it'd be his important ego for, impulses. It'd be important for him to follow a morality code, huh? What what level of conscious would that be? Well, that would be uh, um See, in my in in my hierarchy, assumed hierarchy of waking up, it's the um, obeying the order we depend on, obeying orders inadvertently. Well, what level would your rituals? Your rich oh, rituals. Yeah, it would be rituals. Yeah, does it? See, if, if you recall, we understood rituals to be a dawning awareness that there is a fundamental order we depend on, but we don't yet have the capacity to articulate it. But we set up a code of morality or a code of behavior that allows us to obey that order inadvertently. Yeah, does it? No. To do anything we want certainly anything destructive, potentially anything creative. Commingled with that power, however, is an equally profound existential uncertainty, shallowness and confusion. Our constant cross-cultural interchanges and our capacity for critical reasoning has undermined our faith in the traditions of our forebears, perhaps for good reason. However, the individual cannot live without belief, without action and valuation, and science cannot provide that belief. We must nonetheless put our faith into something. Other myths we have turned to since the rise of science more sophisticated, less dangerous and more complete than those we rejected. The ideological structures that dominated social relations in the 20th century appear no less absurd on the face of it than the older belief systems they supplanted. They lacked, in addition, any of the incomprehensible mystery that necessarily remains part of genuinely artistic and creative production. The fundamental propositions of fascism and communism were rational, logical, statable, comprehensible, and terribly wrong. No great ideological struggle presently tears at the soul of the world, but it is difficult to believe that we have outgrown our gullibility. The rise of the New Age movement in the West, for example, as compensation for the decline of traditional spirituality, provides sufficient evidence for our continued ability to swallow a camel. Oops, what happened? That. What? That, that broke That faded out. Oh, then I'll move my spot then. Hey, Doss? Yeah, what, he, what he's saying is we can't live without uh, these concessions to a working process, these moral codes of morality. We can't live without these belief, belief systems and morality systems. And uh, when, you, when you begin to discover that they are limiting and you begin to outgrow them, the tendency is to just throw them off. Like he was saying that happened in the hippie movement here in the United States back in the 60s and 70s. Doesn't. Do better. Is it possible to understand what might reasonably, even admirably, be believed after understanding that we must believe? Our vast power makes self-control and perhaps self-comprehension a necessity so we have the motivation, at least in principle. Furthermore, the time is auspicious. The third Christian millennium is dawning, at the end of an era when we have demonstrated to the apparent satisfaction of everyone 
that certain forms of social regulation just do not work, even when judged by their own criteria for success. We live in the so, so he's saying like, you know, communism, they kind of try to disband with morality, but that doesn't help or what? Yeah, what he's saying is we, we, we came to an age when we began to realize that, the, that the, the systems that we'd set up are beginning to fall apart. They no longer um, serve the function for which they were designed. But instead of upgrading them and discovering what the higher order is, the tendency is to just throw them off and assume we don't need them. Yeah, those are. No. of the great status experiments of the 20th century, after all, conducted as Nietzsche prophesied. In the doctrine of socialism, there is hidden, rather badly, a will to negate life. The human beings or races that think up such a doctrine must be bungled. Indeed, I should wish that such a few great experiments might prove that in a socialist society, life negates itself, cuts off its own roots. The earth is large enough and man still sufficiently unexhausted. Hence, such a practical instruction and demonstratio ad absurdum would not strike me as undesirable, even if it were gained and paid for with the tremendous expenditure of human lives. There appears to exist some natural or even, dare it be said, some absolute constraints on the manner in which human beings may act as individuals and in society. Some moral presuppositions and theories are wrong. Human nature is not infinitely malleable. It has become more or less evident that pure, abstract rationality, for example, ungrounded in tradition, the rationality which defined Soviet-style communism from inception to dissolution, appears absolutely unable to determine and make explicit just what it is that should guide individual and social behavior. Some systems do not work, even though they make abstract sense, even more sense than alternative, currently operative, incomprehensible, haphazardly evolved systems. Some patterns of interpersonal interaction, which constitute the state, insofar as it exists as a model for social behavior, do not produce the ends they are supposed to produce, cannot sustain themselves over time, or even produce contrary ends, devouring those who enact them and profess their value. Perhaps this is because planned, logical and intelligible systems fail to make allowance for the irrational, transcendent, incomprehensible and often ridiculous aspect of human character, as described by Dostoevsky. It does? Well, what he's saying is the, the communist and, and socialistic systems were designed to provide guidelines, but they never effectively um, uh, served that function. And they, they were destined to fall because of their limitations. And their limitations, he's saying the limitations is it doesn't take into consideration the vast um, differences in human nature from, from the very uh, bizarre and satanic all the way up to the very transcendent and mystical and magical consciousness. Yeah, it doesn't. No. Well, they say they understand transpersonal psychology, that there's a lot of different types of people, but just, just whatever you do, go all out or something. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. No. Now I ask you, 
What can be expected of man, since he is being endowed with such strange qualities? Shower upon him every earthly blessing, drown him in a sea of happiness, so that nothing but bubbles of bliss can be seen on the surface. Give him economic prosperity, such that he should have nothing else to do but sleep, eat cakes, and busy himself with the continuation of his species. And even then, out of sheer ingratitude, sheer spite, man would play you some nasty trick. He would even risk his cakes, and he would deliberately desire the most fatal rubbish, the most uneconomical absurdity, simply to introduce into all this positive good sense his fatal, fantastic element. It is just his fantastic dreams, <coughs> his vulgar folly, that he will desire to retain, simply in order to prove to himself, as though that were so necessary, that men are still men, and not the keys of a piano which the laws of nature threaten to control so completely that soon one will be able to desire nothing but by the calendar. And that is not all. Even if man really were nothing but a piano key, even if this were proved to him by natural science and mathematics, even then he would not become reasonable, but would purposefully do something perverse out of simple ingratitude, simply to gain his point. And if he does not find means, he will contrive destruction and chaos, Will contrive sufferings of all sorts only to gain his point he will launch a curse upon hey that's <clears throat> no see what he's talking about is the general public began to see socialism and communism as as a way of saying everybody has the right to be taken care of so when you assume that you have the right to be taken care of then then you just become lazy and irresponsible therefore that that was the key to the the failure of that whole system but that's not necessarily true you know like those, those that book that said that when people are you know given the money and stuff they actually work harder and they do more creative stuff and that might you know peterson might be false in that it doesn't well no what he's saying is that this is what happened he he didn't say that this is. Oh, but I'm saying I'm just saying that he might be wrong of that. That's what happened. Well, we see it in the Russian culture that this is what happened. No, no, but you know, other people have different opinions about that. They say that it wasn't real communism that happened. That it was uh, also the West was trying to sabotage them and stuff. Any thoughts? Oh well, that could be. It doesn't. No. The world. And as only man can curse, it is his privilege, the primary distinction between him and other animals. Maybe by his curse alone, he will attain his object. That is, convince himself that he is a man and not a piano key. If you say that all this too can be calculated and tabulated, chaos and darkness and curses, so that the mere possibility of calculating it all beforehand would stop it all, and reason would reassert itself, then man would purposefully go mad in order to be rid of reason and gain his point. I believe in it. I answer for it. For the whole work of man really seems to consist in nothing but proving to himself every minute that he is a man and not a piano key. It may be... Hey, that. No. ...at the cost of his skin. It may be by cannibalism. And this being so... Can one help being tempted to rejoice that it has not yet come off and that desire still depends on something we don't know? We also presently possess in accessible and complete form the traditional wisdom of a large part of the human race. 
possess accurate description of the myths and rituals that contain and condition the implicit and explicit values of almost everyone who has ever lived. These myths are centrally and properly concerned with the nature of successful human existence. Careful comparative analysis of this great body of religious philosophy might allow us to provisionally determine the nature of essential human motivation and morality, if we were willing to admit our ignorance and take the risk. Accurate specification of underlying mythological commonalities might comprise the first developmental stage in the conscious evolution of a truly universal system of morality. The establishment of such a system, acceptable to empirical and religious minds alike, could prove of incalculable aid in the reduction of intrapsychic, inter-individual and intergroup conflict. The grounding of such a comparative analysis within a psychology, or even a neuropsychology, informed by strict empirical research, might offer us the possibility of a form of convergent validation and help us overcome the age-old problem of deriving the ought from the is. Help us see that what we must do might be inextricably associated with what it is that we are. Proper analysis of mythology, of the type proposed here, is not mere discussion of historical events enacted upon the world stage, as the traditionally religious might have it, and it is not mere investigation of primitive belief, as the traditionally scientific might presume. It is, instead, the examination, analysis, and subsequent incorporation of an edifice of meaning, which contains within it hierarchical organization of experiential valence. The mythic imagination is concerned with the world in the manner of the phenomenologist, who seeks to discover the nature of subjective reality, instead of concerning himself with the description of the objective world. Myth and the drama that is part of... Hey, does it? No, I think what he's saying is that it's just a part of human nature <clears throat> or our essential nature to want to to learn, to, to put together the your, to, to engage in research and development and to put together a, a perspective on life, a creative perspective. So that's a form of being creative is research and development and trying to develop an, an insight into morality and what is and what should be. What about the idea like phenomenology and the subject of reality and everything? It does. Yeah. What do you think about that? No. No sure. thoughts. Provide answers in image to the following question. How can the current state of experience be conceptualized in abstraction with regards to its meaning? Which means it's subjective, biologically predicated, socially constructed, emotional relevance or motivational significance. Meaning means implication of a behavioral output. Logically, therefore, myth presents information relevant to the most fundamental of moral problems, what should be, i.e. what should be done. The desirable future, the op- It doesn't? No. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm not sure where you're going with that. Like what should be? Object of what should be can only be conceptualized in relationship to the present, which serves at least as a necessary point of contrast and comparison. To get somewhere in the future presupposes being somewhere in the present. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, 
the desirability of the place travelled to depends on the valence of the place vacated. The question of what should be, what line should be travelled, therefore has contained within it, so to speak, three sub-queries, which might be formulated as follows. 1. What is, what is the nature, meaning the significance, of the current state of experience? 2. What should be, to what, desirable, valuable, end should the state be moving? 3. How should we therefore act? What is the nature of the specific processes by which the present state might be transformed into that which is desired? Active apprehension of the goal of behaviour, conceptualised in relationship to the interpreted present, serves to constrain or provide determinate framework for the evaluation of ongoing events, which emerge as a consequence of current behaviour. The goal is an imaginary state consisting of a place of desirable motivation or affect. It is a state that only exists in fantasy, as something potentially preferable to the present. Construction of the goal therefore means establishment of a theory about the ideal relative status of motivational states, about the good. This imagined future constitutes a vision of perfection, so to speak, generated in the light of all current knowledge, at least under optimal conditions to which specific and general aspects of ongoing experience are continually compared. This vision of perfection is the promised land, mythologically speaking, conceptualized as a spiritual domain, a psychological state, a political utopia, a state literally speaking, or both simultaneously. We answer the question, what should be, by formulating an image of the desire. It does. <clears throat> well, she did. <laughs> Reminds me of Teilhard de Chardin and his his theological uh, understanding that that there is a state to which we are aspiring, and we need to identify that and identify the the goals that we need to accomplish in order to reach that state. Is it does No. You think that's true? That that's yeah. True? You think that's a good thing to do, or what? Well, I, I just think that's what the universe is doing. No, whatever. But what about the like idea of goal oriented and stuff? Is that, is that goal oriented? Well, it it can deteriorate into that. See, if if you assume that you can create it, but see, I think what Chardin is saying, and what I assume to be the case, is that it already exists. It's just that it needs to manifest, and we are agents in the manifestation of that. So you think it's like the kingdom of heaven or whatever? Well, it makes you think of like when dad got the shooting machine thinking that he's going to make something happen. Like, oh, 500 shots a day, and then he screwed it up, you know? Yeah. It doesn't? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's the reason why you need to be very circumspect in the goals that you choose and, and the end to which you are aspiring. It doesn't dad was just super immature like he would go to the games and you like sit back and like oh i'm too cool for school when i was really good and everything but then he got the shoe machine and like then he got all mortified just like the immaturity of mom and dad was kind of astounding but whatever they they faced the consequences of it but i still discovered the theory of everything thank goodness any of us it no so what do you think should be Um, the flow. 
No, it doesn't. No. Right future. We cannot conceive of that future, except in relationship to the interpreted present. And it is our interpretation of the emotional acceptability of the present that comprises our answer to the question, what is? What is the nature, meaning the significance, of the current state of experience? We answer the question, how then should we act? By determining the most efficient, self-consistent strategy, all things considered, for bringing the preferred future into being. Our answers to these becomes, questions, modified and considered... Was that it becomes goal-oriented um, when you have an idea of what the flow should look like. But you see, in the when the flow doesn't doesn't have any um, preconceived notion of what it should be or what it looks like. It's just a it's a mode of being. It's not uh, it's not um, an achievable goal. It doesn't. <clears throat> No. Constructed in the course of our social interactions constitutes our knowledge insofar as it has any behavioral relevance, constitutes our knowledge from the mythological perspective. The structure of the mythic knowing what is, what should be, and how to get from one to the other is presented in figure one, the domain and constituent elements of the known. The known is explored territory, a place of stability and familiarity is the city of God as profanely realized. It finds metaphorical embodiment in myths and narratives describing the community, the kingdom, or the state. Such myths and narratives guide our ability to understand the particular bounded motivational significance of the present, experience in relation to some identifiable desired future, and allow us to construct and interpret appropriate patterns of action from within the confines of that schema. We all produce determinate models of what is and what should be and how to transform one into the other. We produce these models by balancing our own desires as they find expression in fantasy and action with those of the others, individual, families and communities that we habitually encounter. How to act constitutes the most essential aspect of the social contract. The domain of the known is, therefore, the territory we inhabit with all those who share our implicit and explicit traditions and beliefs. Myths describe the existence of this shared and determinate territory as a fixed aspect of existence, which it is, as the fact of culture is an unchanging aspect of the human environment. Narratives of the known, patriotic rules, stories of ancestral heroes, myths and symbols of cultural or racial identity, describe established territory, weaving for us a web of meaning that, shared with others, eliminates the necessity of dispute over meaning. All those who know the rules and accept them can play the game without fighting over the rules of the game. This makes for peace, stability, and potential prosperity. A good game. The good, however, is the enemy of the better. A more compelling game might always exist. Myth portrays what is known and performs a function that, if limited to that, might be regarded as paramount in importance. But myth also presents information that is far more profound, almost unutterably so, once, I would argue, properly understood. It does. Yeah, well, what he's saying is basically that if you try to concretize it rather than um, explain it in a myth, then it becomes a goal 
and that's that's building your tower of Babel. That's your own homemade plan of, of salvation and perfection. So that the, the closest you can come to um, understanding of the end is to put it, put it into mythological terms. That, that way you don't concretize it and you don't develop a strategy for making it happen. Kind of like that myth where, where you talked about like the African guy, he went on top of the tree and then the nuts fell in the boat and then he, and then he tried to do it again, but he failed and he drowned. It's like trying to reduplicate the oh, flow. Yeah. Exactly. That was like a myth and that's about that. But, but to say like, oh, don't try to reduplicate the flow, that doesn't do it. But to make it into a myth, it, it, it can speak to you on different levels and stuff. Yep, exactly. We all produce models of what is and what should be and how to transform one into the other. We change our behavior when the consequences of that behavior are not what we would like. But sometimes mere alteration in behavior is insufficient. We must change not only what we do, but what we think is important. This means reconsideration of the nature of motivational significance of the present and reconsideration of the ideal nature of the future. This is a radical, even revolutionary transformation, and it is a very complex process in its realization. But mythic thinking has represented the nature of such change in great and remarkable detail. The basic grammatical structure of transformational mythology, so to speak, appears most clearly revealed in the form of the way, as in the American way of life. The great literary critic, Northrop Fry, comments upon the idea of the way as it manifests itself in literature and religious writing. Following a narrative connected with the central literary... Was it? That must be uh, a different way of talking about the flow, talking about the way. It does. You know? Metaphor of the journey, where we have a person making the journey and the road, path, or direction taken. The simplest word for this being way. Journey is a word connected with jour and journey, and metaphorical journeys, deriving as they mostly do from slower methods of getting around, usually have at their core the conception of the day's journey, the amount of space we can cover under the cycle of the sun. By a very easy extension of metaphor, we get the day's cycle as a symbol for the whole of life. Thus, in Hausmann's poem, Reveille, up lad, when the journey's over, there'll be time enough to sleep. The awakening in the morning is a metaphor of continuing the journey of life, a journey ending in death. The prototype for the image is the book of Ecclesiastes, which urges us to work while it's day before the night comes when no man can work. The word way is a good example of the extent to which language is built up on a series of mm -hmm. metaphorical analogies. The most common meaning of way in English is a method or manner of procedure. But method and manner imply some sequential repetition, and the repetition brings us to the metaphorical kernel of a road or path. In the Bible, way normally translates the Hebrew derek and the Greek hodos. And throughout the Bible, there is a strong emphasis on the contrast between a straight way that takes us to our destination and a divergent way that misleads or confuses. This metaphorical contrast haunts the whole of Christian literature. We start reading Dante's Commedia, and the third line speaks of a lost or erased way. Che la derita via era samarita. It does. 
No, but it just seemed more and more clear that what he's doing is talking, he's, he's equating with the, what the way is trying to identify when we talk about the flow. Seems to be talking about the same reality. Other religions have the same metaphor. Buddhism speaks of what is usually called in English an eightfold path. In Chinese Taoism, the Tao is usually rendered Wei by Arthur Whaley and others, though I understand the character representing the word is formed of radicals meaning something like head going. The sacred book of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, begins by saying that the Tao that can be talked about is not the real Tao. In other words, we are being warned to beware the traps in metaphorical language, or in a common oriental phrase of confusing the moon with the finger pointing at it. But as we... Hey, does it? Yeah. Don't... Don't settle for the... For the... <coughs> the, the description... For the description of the path, the description of the flow, the strategies of a flow, because it's only pointing to that which can be understood only mythologically. The flow can be understood only as a myth. Yeah. Yeah, does it? No. So was it was the meaning of the finger pointing in the moon? Well, see, that's a myth. The finger pointing to the moon is a myth. The finger is the myth. The moon is the flow. Yeah, and it doesn't? No. Read on. We find that the Tao can, after all, to some extent be characterized. The way is specifically the way of the valley, the direction taken by humility, self-effacement, and the kind of relaxation or non-action that makes all action effective. The way is the path of life and its purpose. More accurately, the content of the way is the specific path of life. The form of the way, its most fundamental aspect, is the apparently intrinsic or heritable possibility of positing or of being guided by a central idea. This apparently intrinsic form finds its expression in the tendency of each individual, generation after generation, to first ask and subsequently seek an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? The central notion of the way underlies manifestation of four more specific myths or classes of myths and provides a more complete answer in dramatic form to the three questions posed previously. What is the nature, meaning the significance, of current being? To what desirable end should that state be moving? And finally, what are the processes by which the present state might be transformed into that which is desired? The four classes include 1. Myths describing a current or pre-existent stable state, sometimes a paradise, sometimes a tyranny. 2. Myths describing the emergence of something anomalous, unexpected, threatening, and promising into this initial state. 3. Myths describing the dissolution of the pre-existent stable state into chaos, as a consequence of the anomalous or unexpected occurrence. 4. Myths describing the regeneration of stability, paradise regained, or tyranny regenerated. It does. <clears throat> yeah, well, that corresponds to the what I understand to be the four agents of emergence. Conservation, reformation, dissolution, and uh, transition. 
anticipation. Yes, there's a quadrant, but it doesn't. No. From the chaotic mixture of dissolute previous experience and anomalous information. The meta mythology of the way, so to speak, describes the manner in which specific ideas, myths, about the present, the future, and the mode of transforming one into the other are initially constructed and then reconstructed into their entirety when that becomes necessary. The traditional Christian, and not just Christian, notion that man has fallen from an original state of grace into his current morally degenerate and emotionally unbearable condition, accompanied by a desire for the return to paradise, constitutes a single example of this meta-myth. Christian morality can therefore be reasonably regarded as the plan of action, whose aim is re-establishment or establishment or attainment, sometimes in the hereafter, of the kingdom of God, the ideal future. It doesn't? No. One second. All right. Okay. The idea that man needs redemption, <clears throat> that re-establishment of a long-lost paradise might constitute such redemption, appear as common themes of mythology among members of exceedingly diverse and long-separated human cultures. This commonality appears because man, eternally self-conscious, suffers eternally from his existence and constantly longs for respite. Figure two, the metamythological cycle of the way, schematically portrays the circle of the way, which begins and ends at the same point with establishment of conditional but determinate moral knowledge, belief. Belief is disruptible because finite, which is to say the infinite mystery surrounding human understanding, may break through into our provisional models of how to act at any time, at any point, and disrupt their structure. The manner in which we act as children, for example, may be perfectly appropriate for the conditions of childhood. The processes of maturation change the conditions of existence, introducing anomaly where only certainty once stood, making necessary not only a change of plans, but reconceptualization of where those plans might lead and what or who they refer to in the present. The known, our current story, protects us from the unknown, from chaos, which is to say, provides our experience with determinate and predictable structure. The unknown, chaos, from which we are protected, has a nature all of its own. That nature is experienced as effective valence at first exposure, not as objective property. If something unknown or unpredictable occurs while we are carrying out our motivated plans, we are first surprised. That surprise, which is a combination of apprehension and curiosity, comprises our instinctive emotional response to the occurrence of something we did not desire. The appearance of something unexpected is proof that we do not know how to act by definition, as it is the production of what we want that we use as evidence for the integrity of our knowledge. If we are somewhere we don't know how to act, we are probably in trouble. We might learn something new, but we are still in trouble. When we are in trouble, we get scared. When we are in the domain of the known, so to speak, there is no reason for fear. Outside that domain, panic reigns. 
It is for this reason that we dislike having our plans disrupted. So we cling to what we understand. This does not always work, however, because what we understand about the present is not always necessarily sufficient to deal with the future. It does. Yeah, well, see, that's another way of talking about the ego is magnificent in its accomplishments. We need that kind of structure. We need that kind of stability that it provides, even though it's its reach is limited. We need it in the process of our emergence. Is our full the emergence of our full potential? Yeah, it doesn't. No. This means that we have to be able to modify what we understand, even though to do so is to risk our own undoing. The trick, of course, is to modify and yet to remain secure. That is not so simple. Too much modification. Yeah, see. Too it doesn't. That's that whole process of, uh, of realizing the limitations, but not trying to walk on water before, before you're ready. You still, you got to, you got to keep using a boat until you're, you're sure to be able to walk on water and you just, you experiment with it and then you go back, back in the boat. It doesn't? No. Modification, stagnation. And then when the future we are unprepared for appears, chaos. Involuntary exposure to chaos means accidental encounter with the forces that undermine the known world. The effective consequences of such encounter can be literally overwhelming. It is for this reason that individuals are highly motivated to avoid sudden manifestations of the unknown. For this reason that individuals will go to almost any length to ensure that their protective cultural stories remain intact. It does it? Yeah, well, we need our stories. Our stories serve a useful function until we discover their limitations. Can you give an example? Well, see all of our our reasons and explanations, etc. You know, there are always reasons and explanations and they serve a useful function for a period of time. But eventually we discover there's never enough to look at our reasons, we need to go step beyond that. It's like taking your 500 shots. Eventually, um, that's only preparation and that'll only- yeah, 500 uh, shots is not that important if you're shooting on a shootaway machine in Mississippi your shot, but yeah, I think it does. No. I think it does, eh? No. All right. I'd rather shoot 20 shots regularly than a 500 on that machine. Maps of meaning, three levels of analysis. Human beings are prepared biologically to respond to anomalous information, to novelty. This instinctive response includes redirection of attention, generation of emotion, fear first, generally speaking, then curiosity, and behavioral compulsion. Cessation of ongoing activity first, generally speaking, then active approach and exploration. This pattern of instinctive response, particularly, but not exclusively. Was it? He's talking about the two ideas, the one of of exposure. You have to slowly expose yourself to things outside your own protective enclosure. 
and so you need to be surrounded. That's called raising your boat. And secondly, um, you need to start ex exploration, and that is letting go, like um, the metaphor of um, of uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and that other myth that um, you asked me about a couple of days ago. And willing to let go of what we already have in anticipation of discovering something more. Mm. Yeah, doesn't. No. Jack the beanstalk. He let go of the beans or whatever, and he thought, and it, and it, and it grew a beanstalk. Yeah. Right. Then he had to go through like the hero's journey and fight the giant and everything. What was that about? And he does. Well, see, when you get out walking on water, it's overwhelming. And so, so you need temporary protection from that. Otherwise, you're drowned. It doesn't. No. The learning or you go schizo. Well, yeah. such learning takes place, or took place originally, mm -hmm. as a consequence of contact with novelty or anomaly. What is novel is, of course, dependent on what is known. It's necessarily defined in opposition to what is known. Furthermore. What is known is always known conditionally, since human knowledge is necessarily limited. Our conditional knowledge, insofar as that knowledge is relevant for the regulation of emotion, consists of our models of the emotional significance of the present, defined in opposition to an idealized, hypothetical or fantasized future state. We evaluate the unbearable present in relationship to the ideal future. We act to transform where we are into where we would like to be. When our attempts to transform the present work as planned, we remain firmly positioned in the domain of the known, metaphorically speaking. When our behaviours produce results that we did not want, however, that is, when we err, we move into the domain of the unknown, where more primordial emotional forces rule. Small-scale errors force us to reconstruct our plans, but allow us to retain our goals and our conceptualizations of present conditions. Catastrophic errors, by contrast, force us not only to reevaluate our means, but our starting points and our ends. Such reevaluation necessarily involves extreme emotional dysregulation. The domain of the known and the domain of the unknown can reasonably be regarded as permanent constituent elements of human experience, even of the human environment. Regardless of culture, place and time, human individuals are forced to adapt to the fact of culture, the domain of the known, roughly speaking and the fact of its ultimate insufficiency, as the domain of the unknown necessarily remains extant, regardless of extent of previous adaptation. It does. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. See, the strategies that we develop in our younger years for making things happen, for getting things that we want, and for accomplishing things that we desire, those strategies serve a very useful function and it's very hard to let go of them even even when they're not working so well the tendency is to just work harder at them and eventually we need to get up against the wall and realize that those strategies are never going to work they're they're they were magnificent in what they accomplished so far but eventually uh, um, what we're looking for is beyond our reach the reach of our strategies that we've developed over the course of our lifetime. Yeah, it doesn't. No. The human brain and the higher animal brain 
appears, therefore, to have adapted itself to the eternal presence of these two places. The brain has one mode of operation when in explored territory, and another when in unexplored territory. In the unexplored world, caution, expressed in fear and behavioural immobility, initially predominates, but may be superseded by curiosity, expressed in hope, excitement, and above all, in creative exploratory behaviour. Creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or update of patterns of behaviour and representation, such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial, or at least something irrelevant. The presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent constituent element of human experience, in addition to the domain of the known and unknown. Mythological representations of the world, which are representations of reality as a forum for action, portray the dynamic interrelationship between all three constituent elements of human experience. The eternal unknown, nature, metaphorically speaking, creative and destructive source and destination of all determinate things, is generally ascribed an effectively ambivalent feminine character as the mother and eventual devourer of every one and everything. The eternal known, in contrast, culture, defined territory, tyrannical and protective, predictable, disciplined and restrictive, cumulative consequence of heroic or exploratory behaviour, is typically considered masculine, in contradistinction to mother, nature. The eternal knower, finally, the process that mediates between the known and unknown, is the knight who slays the dragon of chaos, the hero who replaces disorder and confusion with clarity and certainty, the sun god who eternally slays the forces of darkness, and the word that engenders creation of the cosmos. 2.1. It does? No, that's pretty heavy. Yeah, but, but the sun god, like Jesus takes the place of the sun god, you know, is greater than that because the sun represents the power and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's important and stuff, illumination, knowledge and stuff, but there's something greater. And that's why Jesus kind of usurps that. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's good. Normal and revolutionary life. Two prosaic stories. We tell ourselves stories about who we are, where we would like to be, and how we're going to get there. These stories regulate our emotions by determining the significance of all the things we encounter and all the events we experience. We regard things that get us on our way as positive, things that impede our progress as negative, and things that do neither as irrelevant. Most things are irrelevant, and that is a good thing, as we have limited attentional resources. Inconveniences interfere with our plans. We do not like inconveniences, and we will avoid dealing with them. Nonetheless, they occur commonly, so commonly, in fact, that they might be regarded as an integral, predictable, and constant feature of the human environment. We have adapted to this feature, have the intrinsic resources to cope with inconveniences. We benefit, become stronger in doing so. Ignored inconveniences accumulate rather than disappear. When they accumulate in sufficient numbers, they produce a catastrophe, a self-induced catastrophe to be sure, but one that may well be indistinguishable from an act of God. Inconveniences interfere with the integrity of our plans, so we tend to pretend that they are not there. Catastrophes, by contrast... It does. 
No. Interfere with the integrity of our whole stories and massively dysregulate our emotions. By their nature, they are harder to ignore, although that does not stop us from trying to do so. Inconveniences are common. Unfortunately, so are catastrophes, self-induced and otherwise. We are adapted to catastrophes, like inconveniences, as constant environmental features. We can resolve a catastrophe, just as we can cope with an inconvenience, although at a higher cost. As a consequence of this adaptation, this capacity for resolution, catastrophe can rejuvenate. It can also destroy. The more ignored inconveniences in a given catastrophe, the more likely it will destroy. Yeah, that's good. See, that's like of inquiry. Was it? it? That's like the shoot away. It was either a catastrophe or an inconvenience. But uh, if they're ignored, they get in the way. But when they're dealt with, then they don't need to get in the way. Yeah, well, it was definitely. It wasn't that it was ignored. It was just it wasn't realized that that was the problem. You know. Right. It was a, it was a, an in, was it an inconvenience or a catastrophe? It's a catastrophe. Yeah. Well, see, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is it doesn't matter. It, one is just a catastrophe. It's harder to go beyond, but it, it's, it's. Well, no, but everything worked out. I discovered the greatest theory in history though, you know, so it turned out to be for yeah, the best. That's what I, yeah. That's what I said. It can be gone beyond. Yeah. And it doesn't. No into intellectual and emotional function to enable the development of a provisional general theory of emotional regulation. Description of the role reaction to novelty or anomaly plays in human information processing is clearly central to such a theory. A compelling body of evidence suggests that our affective, cognitive... But I think that one thing that would definitely help the situation is if dad were to talk to me and I'd be able to show him what happened and, you know, have a normal relationship with him, but, you know, very immature, very, you know, it's it's that doesn't shine. I mean, it all worked out for the best. I think it happened for a reason. They did what he did, but I don't think it's looking too good on him to, to do what he's doing. But it doesn't. No. Behavioral responses to the unknown or unpredictable are hardwired. Suggests that these responses constitute inborn structural elements of the process of consciousness itself. We attend involuntarily to those things that occur contrary to our predictions that occur in spite of our desires as expressed in expectation. That involuntary attention comprises a large part of what we refer to when we say consciousness. Our initial attention constitutes the first step in the process by which we come to adjust our behavior and our interpretive schemas to the world of experience, assuming that we do so, constitutes as well the first step we take when we modify the world to make it what we desire instead of what it is currently. Modern investigation into the role of novelty in emotion and thought began with the Russians E. N. Sokolov, O. Vinogradova, A. R. Luria, and more recently E. Goldberg, who adopted an approach to human function that is in many ways unique. Their tradition apparently stems from Pavlov, who viewed the reflex arc as a phenomena of central importance, and from the Marxist intellectual legacy, which regarded work, creative action, as the defining feature of man. Whatever the specific historical precedents, it is most definitely the case that the Russians have regarded motor output and its abstract equivalents as the critically relevant aspect of human existence. It doesn't? No. This
This intellectual position distinguished them historically from their Western counterparts, who tended to view the brain as an information processing machine akin to the computer. Psychologists in the West have concentrated their energies on determining how the brain determines what is out there, so to speak, out there from the objective viewpoint. The Russians, by contrast, have devoted themselves to the role of the brain in governing behavior and in generating affects or emotions associated with that behavior. Modern animal experimentalists, most notably Jeffrey Gray, have adopted the Russian line with striking success. We now know, at least in broad outline, how we respond to those annoying, irritating, frightening, promising things that we do not expect. Pioneering Russian psychophysiologist E.N. Sokolov began work on the reflex basis of attention in the 1950s. By the early 60s, this work had advanced to the point where he could formulate the following key propositions. First, one possible approach to analyzing the process of reflection is to consider the nervous system as a mechanism which models the external world by specific changes that occur in its internal structure. In this sense, a distinct set of changes in the nervous system is isomorphic with the external agent that it reflects and resembles. As an internal model that develops in the nervous system in response to the effect of agents in the environment, the image performs the vital function of modifying the nature of behavior, allowing the organism to predict events and actively adjust to its environment. And second, my first encounter with phenomena which indicated that the higher divisions of the central nervous system form models of external agents involved the study of reactions to novel stimulus features. I it does. No. Characterize these reactions as orienting reflexes. The peculiar feature of the orienting reflex is that after several applications of the same stimulus, generally five to 15, the response disappears or, as the general expression goes, is extinguished. However, the slightest possible change in the stimulus is sufficient to awaken the response. Research on the orienting reflex indicates that it does not occur as a direct result of incoming excitation. Rather, it is produced by signals of discrepancy which develop when afferent, that is, incoming, signals are compared with the trace formed in the nervous system by an earlier signal. Sokolov was concerned primarily with the modeling of the events in the objective external world, assuming, essentially, that when we model, we model facts. Most of the scholars who have followed his lead have adopted this central assumption, at least implicitly. This position requires some modification. We do model facts, but we concern ourselves with valence or value. It is therefore the case that our maps of the world contain what might be regarded as two distinct types of information, sensory and affective. It is not enough. It, it does it? <clears throat> no, that's probably enough for today. All right, did you like that? Yeah, it was good stuff. All right. <clears throat> okay, later. <clears throat>